through 11. And this is a story that's near and dear to my heart because it involves Jesus going fishing. Sounds like a great day already, doesn't it? We don't know of any other times that Jesus went fishing. Maybe he did. But this is the only one that we have recorded where he specifically goes fishing. Now, fishing in these days wasn't done exactly as we do it now. It was more with nets. That's how they fished. The rod and reel wouldn't come along until much later. But this is a profound story, and it's a simple story that makes a profound point. And really, the amazing part of this whole story is how Jesus uses something so simple, like a catch of fish, in order to redirect the lives of these early disciples. And so that will be what we look at this morning. I want to read our story for us. It's a very simple story, but I think you'll see as we read along, it is absolutely profound at the same time. This is Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out from them, and they were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you'll be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. What an amazing story. We have a simple outline that we'll follow this morning. Just four words, teaching, fishing, worshiping, and commissioning. Teaching, fishing, worshiping, and commissioning. As a reminder of where we are, I'll show you a map. This is just a general overview of Luke's gospel. And so most of the time Jesus spends is up in the northern part uh, in the area called Galilee, and that's where the story takes place. You'll notice that Luke uses the term the Lake of Gennesaret, which is also another term for the Sea of Galilee. So that's the big body of water there to the north in Israel, and that flows down, eventually making its way into the Dead Sea, which is right around uh, Jerusalem, or going towards Jerusalem at least. And so a lot of Jesus' ministry in the early days is recorded for us, and he's sort of traversing back and forth across the Sea of Galilee, also called like Gennesaret. And it says in, it tells us in chapter 4 that they wanted him to stay there in Capernaum, which this is a little bit more detailed map of what's going on. Let's see if I can highlight this for us here. Uh, Capernaum here, and he want, they wanted him to stay, but he doesn't. And so he's somewhere on the northern end of the Sea um, of Galilee, right up here. And so that's where our story is taking place. They wanted him to stay, and he says, I can't stay because these other areas need to hear the message that I'm preaching. And so he goes, and he goes to teach. And that's the first point that we'll see, is that the ministry of Jesus is a teaching ministry, 
We noted this last week, but words are necessary to communicate the gospel message. He does other things, of course, does miracles, he heals people, he provides relief from suffering, he makes people whole and well, but ultimately he has a message that he wants to communicate and he does that through teaching. Now there were places that the people would gather. It says he often went to the synagogues. The synagogues were sort of an outpost for teaching the Old Testament at the time, the, old, the scriptures, the Old Testament, as we would understand it, sort of an outpost. It wasn't a temple. That was a different thing. That was in Jerusalem, but they were outposts for people to gather and to worship and for the teaching of the word. And so Jesus did go to the synagogues, but as we see in our story here, he was also creative and he would teach wherever he had a crowd and opportunity. And we see this, the most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. It's not the sermon from the pulpit in the synagogue. It's the Sermon on the Mount. He teaches wherever there's people, wherever there's a group. He's an opportunist in that way. And so what he does, it's very practical. There's probably a natural sort of amphitheater type of setting there on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee, sort of a sloping bank away from the water. And there's so many people, they're crowding in, they're just wanting to hear what Jesus says. So just to create a little bit of distance, he hops on a boat, asks him to push off a little bit from shore, and then he can, he's able to address the crowd. As I was reading this, I was thinking about back in the 1700s, some of our history buffs may know a little bit about this. In the 1700s and even parts of early America, you had to have a permit to preach. Uh, you couldn't just go preach just anywhere. And so that gave rise to John Wesley and the Wesley brothers and eventually Whitfield and some of the others who would end up being like so instrumental in the founding of the Methodist denomination and movement and eventually sending missionaries over to the Americas. And they began preaching in fields they would just gather up and preach in fields because they couldn't get permits to preach in the churches. Now, we don't operate exactly in that sort of system today. But wherever the people were, they were willing to bring the word. And we see that same thing, same exact thing in Jesus. There's a priority on the preaching, the teaching. So that's simple enough, verses 1 through 3. Now it gets a little bit more dicey and interesting. Next, we have fishing. So he finishes the sermon, verse 3, getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. Then verse 4, and when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now this is interesting. Put out into the deep. Jesus finishes the sermon, and he says, all right, time to go fishing. Sounds like a fantastic day, doesn't it? finish the sermon, go fishing. I like this. There's a couple of things here going on. This is a boat that they found. This was actually found at the Sea of Galilee. Some fishermen found it in the late 80s, and they had a pretty significant drought, and so water levels dropped way down. Somebody saw just a little bit of a what looked like an ancient nail, and they started to dig this thing out. Well, they found this, and they, they call it the Jesus boat now because it was there on the shore of Galilee. No evidence that this is the actual boat, but it's probably something like this. And so the, the picture on your left is a reconstruction, basically a replica of the one that they actually found, which is the pictures on the right, the remains of that boat. So this was the type of situation, and they would have nets, and sometimes they would work with a partner boat, and you see a mention of another boat, and they would, one, one boat would take one end of the net, and the other boat would take the other end of the net, and they would kind of move forward, sort of like a seine system, if you're familiar with that, and they would catch fish, and that's how fishing in that day worked. 
And sometimes they, of course, would throw nets as an individual boat today, sort of like shrimpers uh, would do today, dragging nets across different areas. Now, there's a couple of things here going on that are really interesting to me. And as I've been studying this and putting this together, I'm trying not to let the fishermen in me speak too much here. I, had, I wanted to just like show you fishing pictures and tell you about going fishing, but I'm not going to do that this morning. I'm mostly not going to do that this morning. But there's a few interesting things going on here. One is that Peter is the professional fisherman, not Jesus. Jesus' dad was a carpenter. That trade was passed down to him. And so he's the professional fisherman, and yet Jesus is telling him, hey, go out to the deeper water and put out your nets. What did Peter say? Verse 5. And Simon, Simon, also called Peter, same guy, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I'll let down the nets. Um, Hey, Jesus, (laughs) we've tried this. Um, Why don't you stick to preaching and building stuff as a carpenter? Let us handle the fishing. Do you really know what you're talking about, what you're doing? It's just bad for him to hop on another man's boat and tell him where to fish, right? It's like an etiquette thing. You don't just hop on a guy's boat and like, hey, go over there, unless they ask you. It's kind of like going over to your neighbor's house and telling him how to operate the grill. Like, it's just like a code. You don't do that. You don't, you don't tell another guy how to operate that. So on the, on the surface level, there's no real reason to listen to Jesus. What do you know? What do you know, Jesus? What do you know about fishing? Yeah, we recognize your teaching ministry. But there's something going on here, and we'll see this develop really with Peter over time. There's something going on, and there's a developing awareness and understanding of who Jesus is. Peter's already seen miraculous things at this point. And so there's a respect that he has for Jesus, and he says, because you asked, we'll do that. Another thing that's interesting about this to me, Jesus doesn't say, let's go fishing, He says, drop your nets for a catch, all right? There's a saying amongst fishermen, when you're not catching anything, somebody always has to say it on the boat when you're not catching anything. That's why they call it fishing, not catching. Unless you're Jesus, and then you call it catching. He's going catching. Jesus isn't saying, there might be some fish out there. He says, no, no. They're there, just watch. Put down your nets. Hey, let's try this spot over here. I've known many overconfident fishermen. Hey, we're going to go over there, and that's where they are. And a lot of times, sometimes it works, but sometimes fish have a way of making a complete fool out of you as well when you think you know what's going on. Peter, okay, fine, let's try it. Let's try it, and then we see what happens. I took somebody out not that long ago, and I was back in this little creek, and... I said, uh, hey, I don't, I don't see anything here. Let's, let's move to another spot. He's like, nah, can we, can we wait just a few more minutes? I said, okay, fine. And I'm sitting there thinking, what does he know? He's never been back here. He's never been out here. Two minutes later, Rodman's over. He catches a big red fish. I'm like, beginner's luck, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Most of the time, that doesn't work out. But for Jesus, of course, it does. Of course, it does. Look at verses 5 and 6. Verse 6. So they did what Jesus said, and when they had done this, they enclosed on the, in the nets a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. There's so many fish, they can't even handle them with one boat. So they signaled to the other boat, they signaled to the partners in the other boat to come help them, and they filled the boats so that they began to sink. 
Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how many fish it takes to sink a boat of the size that we were just looking at. I couldn't even really venture a guess. I'm going to say thousands, a lot of fish. And these fish, we're not told exactly what type of fish. There's a few different ones. It could have been um, from like a carp-like fish or maybe a tilapia-ish kind of fish. There's also little sardine types of fish over there as well. It could have been any number of those. It could have been a combination of those. We really don't know. But whatever it was, it was so overwhelming that it, the catch begins to sink the boats, which is unbelievable. Unbelievable. So many fish. So many fish. That's a good day fishing when you have to call your partners to come help you because your boat's sinking because you've got so many fish on board. Unbelievable. Now, this leads to some interesting conversations about the person of Jesus. And so what we'll do as we walk through the gospel of Luke is we'll see these stories. We'll see the miracles that he did. We'll see the teaching. And then occasionally we'll just pause and sort of step back and ask some questions about how exactly did that work? And sometimes we'll raise really better questions than we have answers for, and I'll be the first to admit that. So a couple of kind of fundamental questions here that come up when I look at this story. Did Jesus know where the fish were? Or did he tell them to go to the net? Like, we don't really know. We're not told exactly. How did he know? Did Jesus have this supernatural ability to sort of flip the switch and plug into omniscience, all-knowingness, or was this something else? My argument is, and I'll make this argument throughout the Gospel of Luke, so I hope you'll stick with us. I think this develops as you read Luke. I think the argument so far from the Gospel of Luke and the explanation for how Jesus knows and has command over the elements of nature in this way the answer is he is living his life as a true, full human being empowered by the Spirit of God. And so we have this conception by the Spirit of God. He's baptized by John, his relative, and the Spirit of God comes upon him. He goes out to the wilderness, it says, by the Spirit of God. The Messianic ministry begins. He talks about the Spirit of God empowering the Messianic Messiah in the book of Isaiah is what he quotes from. And then we get this whole series of events where Jesus does things that are incredible and supernatural. And I believe he's living his life as a true and full human empowered by the Spirit of God. I think that's the important piece. And I think that's what Luke is emphasizing for us here. So we get this picture of abundance in verse 7. They filled the boats, they began to sink. It's not just a couple of extra fish. It's not, hey, we found a couple of keepers over here. No, it's absolutely incredible and abundant. Now watch the reaction that happens. Watch the reaction. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Now, if you have a really great fishing trip, it's not typical to fall down on your knees at the feet of your charter captain, right? That's not normal behavior. And so what's going on here? This is so far beyond just a good day fishing. This is obviously, obviously something supernatural. Remember, Peter is the professional fisherman. He's probably had really good days out there before. He's never seen anything like this, though. 
who is this person? He just told us to push out, drop the nets, and now we have this overwhelming catch. It's unbelievable to Peter. He doesn't know what to do. And so he does the only thing he does know to do, and that is to bow in reverence before Christ. The mastery over nature, it brings awareness to Peter of his own sin. There's a connection here between the power that Jesus demonstrates and reverence, a sense of unworthiness. Now, a couple of things are interesting here. Peter is already, he's already seen Jesus do some incredible things, right? In fact, it was back in chapter 4 and verse 38 that it's Peter's mother-in-law that was healed. It says she had a very high fever, and Jesus rebukes the fever and makes her whole and well. He saw Jesus heal other people and cast demons out. You know, you don't want to make too much out of this, but it is interesting that he worships after the fishing trip, not after his mother-in-law's healed. I don't know if there's something to that or not. This is why we need good hermeneutics, rules of interpreting scripture. That's not the point. It is interesting, though, and I think what's going on here is there's a growing awareness and a growing understanding of who Jesus is in the mind of Peter. And so he's listening to the teaching of Jesus. He's seeing these miraculous things. And then when this one happens, in his profession, in his boat, it doesn't seem like the right time. We just tried this. Something clicks with Peter. This guy is different. And he falls and he worships Jesus. This is the story that happens in the Bible. When people meet God, they fall on their face. That's how it works. Exodus 3 when Moses meets God at the burning bush, take off your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Exodus 19, when God visits the people at Mount Sinai and the mountain's on fire and there's a deep cloud of smoke, the people back up and say, Moses, you go talk to him. We don't wanna talk to him. He's scaring us to death. Isaiah 6, the throne room scene of God where Isaiah gets a vision and this strange creatures are surrounding God and crying out, holy, 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 the song that we just sang, holy, 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 in this antiphonal sort of way that back and forth, back and forth about the holiness of God. And Isaiah says, woe is me. The interesting part about Isaiah 6 is if you read the context up to that, he had just been pronouncing woes on everybody else. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you. He sees God, what's he do? Woe is me. Woe is me. This is what happens when you meet God, when you come, become aware of his holiness and your sinfulness. I have a graphic that I wanna show you that I think is helpful for us to understand something of what's going on here. There's obviously, this is a little different context than what I'll show you, but I've used this over the years and it's extremely helpful. When we first come to conversion, when we first come to understand the gospel that Jesus is the Messiah, I'm a sinner and he's holy. There's a gap that's produced. God is holy, I'm not. And so it works something like this. This is from uh, Gospel-Centered Life, uh, from Living Gospel-Centered Life. So you have this moment of conversion and then what happens is God is holy, I'm not. You need something to bridge the gap. What bridges the gap? The cross bridges the gap. Oh, Jesus paid for my sins. But then what happens over time, and many of you that have been Christians for many years, you can attest to this, you have this growing awareness of God's holiness as you continue to live your life, as you continue to study the scripture, and you have this growing awareness of your 
extreme depravity and sinfulness as you continue to live your life. And sometimes, some of us, we feel like this process of God sanctifying us, you feel like you're sweeping a dirt floor. Has anybody else ever been there? It's like the more I sweep, the more I realize I'm a sinner and he's holy. And so what do you do with the gap? That's the question as you continue to move forward. What do you do with the gap? Well, you can try to work your way to close the gap. That doesn't really work. Or you can try to pretend like the gap doesn't actually exist. I'm not as bad as I thought I was. No, no, no. Those are just bad thoughts. The answer is the cross has to grow, all right? It's not pretending at the top. It's not performing or performing at the top, pretending at the bottom. The cross has to grow. And I think somewhat for Peter, there's a growing awareness of who Jesus is. Now, obviously, this illustration doesn't exactly work for Peter because the cross hasn't happened yet. But I think there's a sense in which he's growing in his understanding of God's holiness, who Jesus is, and who I am. What are you going to do about that? For Peter, this produces a complete life change. And that's where we see the commissioning come into play. Verse 9, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So we're, we're changing this equation. You're no longer going to be catching fish. You're going to be catching men. He changes his vocation. Jesus goes fishing with him, has the greatest day of fishing in his professional career, and that's it. You're done fishing now. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. There's another fishing story, and I'll get to that in just a moment, at the end of Peter's life. or the, Not the end of his life, but the end of his ministry, as recorded in the Gospels. Do not be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. What's interesting is that Jesus uses a turn of phrase here, and he uses it in a different sense than the prophets used it. Jeremiah said this, Behold, I'm sending for many fishers, declares the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. The difference here is that this is actually, a, these are judgment. It's judgment. You're going to get caught. Getting caught from the perspective of the fish is not positive, right? Getting Getting taken from the perspective of the prey is not a positive thing. But Jesus actually turns it and says, you're going to go catch them, but it's going to be good. You're going to catch men, and they're going to become followers of me as well. And that's what we see with this amazing commissioning that happens. Jesus assures them, says, don't be afraid. Jesus says this a lot. The Bible says this a lot. Don't be afraid. It's a natural response to who Jesus is, but just come follow me. And this is what we're going to do. He doesn't tell him specifically here to come follow me, but it's implied in the story. And then other gospel writers do include that part of it. And so this commissioning. Lastly, I want to go to John 21 for a moment. There's another story that's very similar to this, and I want to read that one. If you have your Bibles with you, you may want to turn there. I'll read portions of this and just make a few comments. Some Scholars have said these are actually the same story because there's so many similarities. I think there's way too many differences for them to be the same story. So I think this is the other fishing story from Jesus. This time he's not on the boat. He's on the shore. And this is after the resurrection. Important point. Need to know that. After the resurrection. Verse 3. 21, and I'll start reading in verse 3. 
Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. They went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So many people think that when Simon says here, I'm going fishing, it's not just I'm going fishing and I'll be back in a little while. I'm going fishing to clear my head. Many think that Simon is saying, I'm going back to fishing as a vocation. That's what many people think he's saying there. Perhaps. Verse 4. Just as day was breaking, and they caught nothing at night, which sounds familiar. Just as day was breaking, verse 4, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. That's the worst, is when you're out fishing, somebody says, hey, did you catch anything? You're like, no, did you? (laughs) And it's the worst. No, they haven't. They haven't caught anything. Verse 6, He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. (laughs) Again, the confidence. Hey, did you try over here? No, we hadn't thought about that, Jesus. We've just been out all night fishing. So they cast it and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. He does the same thing. This time he tells them a direction, not just out in the deep, and he guarantees a catch. Same. Verse 7. The disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, John refers to himself in that way in the book, Gospel of John, it is the Lord. And Simon, Peter, again reacts. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. I love Peter's reaction to things. He's just all in, whatever he's doing. He recognizes it's Jesus. He says, I'm not even waiting to push back. Forget about the fish. I'm going to see Jesus. And he takes off. Verse 8, the other disciples came in, came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land but about 100 yards off. Verse 9. When they got out on land, they saw the char- a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. All different kinds of theories on why 153. I think the point is there were a lot, a lot of fish. Verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. So at this point, post-resurrection, they know it's the Lord. This is an interesting story. It's interesting because the life of Peter, as it's recorded in the Gospels at least, it starts with a fishing trip and an amazing, divinely inspired catch of fish, which kicks off his discipleship under Jesus, and then it also ends, the gospel accounts end with Jesus saying, you're not going to catch fish, you're going to be a fisher of men. It's right after this that Jesus restores Peter. You remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times, three times he asked Jesus, do you love me? And he sends him out now to go be a shepherd. Begins with a fishing trip, ends with a fishing trip. As we wind this up and move into a time of of communion here. There's really three reactions that people have to Jesus, and you'll see this throughout the Gospels. Some people hate him, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Some people are scared to death of him, like we see even in the stories that we see today, and then adoration of Jesus. Those are the three reactions. The one thing that you can't be to Christ is indifferent. He hasn't really left that as an option for us. You can't be indifferent towards him. You can't just shrug your shoulders and say, huh, eh, that doesn't matter. 
Oh, it matters. It matters immensely. There's nothing more important than the person and work of Jesus. And with that in mind, we come today and we have the opportunity to celebrate communion. As we're walking through the Gospel of Luke, we're leading up to something. We're leading up to the time when Jesus would give his life. So much of the real estate in the Gospel accounts is dedicated to that final week where Jesus came into Jerusalem and he gave his life as a ransom. We come today to celebrate communion, to recognize that we believe this is true. We believe that Jesus really did these things. We believe he was the Messiah. And we come today to celebrate that. And it's a privilege and joy for us to be able to do so. Just a couple of notes on communion. We practice open communion here, which means if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we invite you to participate. In just a moment, our men will come forward and we'll distribute the cup and the bread uh, to you. You're welcome to participate with us if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. If you're not a believer in Christ or maybe don't know what you think about all of this, you don't really understand or know yet what you think about Jesus, or maybe you're considering that, we would ask you just watch today and 